Hello, and welcome to The Course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with Assistant Professor Anjali Adukia from the Harris School of Public Policy and the College. Professor Adukia is also the director of the Me Lab, that stands for Messages, Identity, and Inclusion in Education. Professor Adukia is here to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome, Professor Anjali Adukia. It's a pleasure to have you. It is a pleasure to be with you, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. So, Anjali, can you give me a general idea of your career path? And we can start from your college years all the way to your current position at the University of Chicago. Absolutely. So I started out in college as a, I was a molecular and integrative physiology major. I thought I wanted to get my MD, PhD and work on pediatric oncology, both as a researcher and a practitioner. But I was also very interested in service and other other ways of engaging with the community. And so I was working in a lab. And at the same time, I was also volunteering in you know various organizations, one of which was a, a, a homeless shelter. And so a pretty important kind of turning point in where I decided, started to think about not going to medical school, but instead taking a slightly different path was, so I went to college at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and it gets very cold there. And it was one of those nights, one of those winter nights where, you know, it was negative 10 degrees or something. It was very, very cold. And there was a regular resident who hadn't actually shown up yet. And the policy was that people had to come in by a certain time. And typically we would send out a, a search team to go find people. And so this one particular resident, normally I would go out and and find the person, but I also had to get back to my professor's lab to feed these cells. And if I didn't go, the nine months of work would actually die. And thankfully, there were other people who could go out and search. And so I was running back to the lab, and it just really dawned on me that where I wanted to put my time was these issues of poverty and inequality and thinking about, you know, how do we change the system? And so fast forward to the next summer, and there were this series of shootings that happened starting from around the Chicago area down to Champaign-Urbana by someone who, you know, was a white supremacist, and they wanted to make Champaign-Urbana the hub of white supremacy. And a group of us said, not in our backyard, you know, and so we we did a lot of anti-violence type work. And I was sitting in my favorite class, CSB 308, which was immunology. And I found myself daydreaming about these white blood cells eating up white supremacists. And it it made me realize, okay, I really need to think about my path uh, and what I'm doing. And so I said, okay, let me put med school on hold for now. And let me just try to pursue some of these other, other interests of mine. So I moved to San Francisco and worked in nonprofits. Uh, I was first working with a, um, a nonprofit that worked with women starting high-tech and life science businesses. And it was great and interesting because I was interested in entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship in particular. But at the same time, I was volunteering for this group that was working with kids, specifically middle school age girls, to give them, uh, you know, give them skills related to entrepreneurship as an alternative to pregnancy and other paths that might lead them to drop out of school. And I thought, again, I'm more interested in working on these kinds of issues rather than helping people who were already quite wealthy just become wealthier. And again, it's super important pathway and the people there were doing great work. But so so then 
I moved jobs to work at the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And again, that was more from a perspective of trying to understand how did this organization that started super small become huge? It was kind of an education for me to learn about social entrepreneurship. And while I was there, uh, 9-11 happened. And here I am in the Bay Area, and there were these kids in Berkeley, California, which is this bastion of liberalness. There was this one kid who got his head banged against the sidewalk and his blood stained the sidewalk. And you know, there were these school officials who said, this is an isolated incident. And clearly, if this is happening there, you know, what was happening all around across the U.S. in more rural areas or areas which were more conservative or certainly in my hometown? And so I thought, gosh, like, how do we address these issues of bias and you know, an identity and it starts young, but people don't listen to a kindergarten teacher, unfortunately, not as much as they should, but they do listen to people who are in, you know, higher education or policy. And so, you know, maybe if I can be in those kinds of centers um, of influence, then I can actually make some sort of a difference. And so I was actually talking to a friend um, and, you know, at this time I was really thinking of all these different career paths. Do I get an MBA? Well, I wasn't interested in, and at that time I thought of it as just hedge funds and more the corporate world, which is absolutely not the case, actually. Uh, now, MBA programs are much broader than that. I thought about law degrees, and I didn't actually realize all of the things you could do with a law degree. Um, you know, I was thinking about it in a much more narrow fashion. And uh, I was talking to a friend who was in this um, program at Harvard, which was essentially like, instead of a master's in business administration, a master's in nonprofit and educational administration, it was called the ma master's in higher ed administration, but you it had a lot of flexibility to take whatever you wanted. And so um, I applied and went and, you know, that was this super eye-opening year where I just learned about all these different career paths. And then following that, I did a fellowship, uh, which put me in the office of the president and provost at Harvard, which again, super fascinating. You just learned about all the inner workings. And again, how much um, influence these centers of higher education really have. And while I was there, there was this opportunity to potentially work in Iraq. And for various security reasons, the project fell through. And one of my mentors said to me, you know, and I'd been interested in kind of learning about and getting experience in international spheres with the idea that, you know, even if we want to make changes here in the U.S., we need to learn about best practices that are going on around the world and then be able to integrate them accordingly. And she said, you know, if you're wanting to go international, why don't you go to India? It's the place of your heritage. I, I was born and raised in the United States, but my parents were immigrants from India. And I was very worried about going and, you know, being this single woman that my family get would get scared that, you know, they would want to shelter me and protect me. But then I remember there was this organization that I had heard of a few years before that called Indicor. And it was basically this you know, incubator for people who wanted to be social entrepreneurs, essentially. And, you know, they brought in people from the diaspora. So people of Indian origin from around the world. And it was really wonderful because they took seriously this notion of partnerships with local NGOs and how is it that we can understand what's going on locally. And while I was there, so my, I was brought in specifically to start up their domestic initiatives. So 
up until that point, they were very focused on bringing people from outside of India into India. But then they said, no, we really want to engage people who are already in India and build that capacity. And so while I was there, the Asian tsunami of 2004 happened. And I was based in Ahmedabad, Gujarat, doing work in other places as well. But when the tsunami hit, we actually moved down to Tamil Nadu, which is which was very badly hit by the by the tsunami and worked on rehabilitation efforts. And while I was there, you know, you'd see that one village would be doing one thing and another village just five kilometers away would be doing something completely different. And no one was really learning from, you know, a major earthquake that happened in Gujarat, you know, not too far back. And so I was emailing with an advisor of mine from my master's program and saying, you know, how do we learn best practices? How do we know what works? And and she said, why don't you come back to grad school and we'll teach you these things? And so I, you know, I often say, don't, don't pick your doctoral programs the way I did in the sense that I just said, okay, sure. You know, so I came back to the States and and then applied and, and went to the Harvard Graduate School of Education for my doctorate. And it was wonderful. People really should do more, more research than that. But it was, it was amazing because it was, again, this opportunity to really explore the different possibility, possible ways to, I always knew that I wanted to make some sort of positive impact in the world. And, you know, there are many ways that one can do it. And that's when I really learned about academia as a path. Uh, I didn't ever think about that. That was the route I was going to go. I thought I was going to work in the world of policy and practice. And suddenly I realized that, wow, you can do research on topics that you deeply care about. You eventually can teach about what it is that you care about. You work with students who are interested in the same issues that you care about. And that's frankly where you make a lot of your impact is, is through students. And then you can work in areas of policy and practice related to your research. And so, and then it was this circuitous path, you know, in terms of how I ended up working on the questions that I was working on. And so when you tell people that you're working on education in, in developing contexts, people often jump to, oh, you know, why don't you give laptops to every child? And the fact is that kids would love laptops, I'm sure, but there's often much more pressing needs that face them, which is around safety and health and and so, you know, I became very interested in how much further can we get if we really address these fundamental needs that children face? Well, what I love about your story is that it was circuitous. You know, it wasn't you knew forever that you wanted to be an academic. But speaking of your academic work, how would you explain your current research to someone who is not involved in your field? Yeah, so so. Generally speaking, I'm interested in understanding how to reduce inequalities such that children from especially historically disadvantaged backgrounds have equal opportunities to fully develop their potential. And specifically, I, I want to understand the factors that motivate and shape behavior, preferences, attitudes, and general decision-making around education. And I focus on early life influences with this idea that they have an outsized impact on people's the rest of people's lives. And as I mentioned, I, you know, focus on the provision of basic needs. So, you know, originally I worked on issues related to safety and health, economic security in India. So thinking about what if you address issues of sanitation, which can be connected to both safety and health, or, you know, what if you give minimum wage jobs to everyone or you make them available? So how does that actually change outcomes related to, you know, economic security? But 
I actually think another set of basic needs are those related, for example, to justice and to representation. And when I say justice, you know, if you go to school and you're not treated like a full human being or that if you're not treated fairly or your teachers don't trust you, then you're actually not able to fully interact and engage in the same way because you're not being treated like a full human being. And so I'm interested in, you know, specifically the school justice system. So I'm working on some some projects related to restorative justice in schools. So it's a different way of engaging with what people might perceive as misconduct. Separately, I'm working on issues related to representation. So again, if you don't see yourself or others represented in the world, what are those implicit and explicit messages that are being transmitted about how society works and whose space it is. And so there we're actually using a lot of the new artificial intelligence tools that are being developed in computer vision, which convert images to data and natural language processing, which convert text to data to see what are those messages that are being sent in children's books to to kids. Wow, that's fascinating. So there is this emphasis in your research on children. And that made me curious about what you were like as a child and what you thought you wanted to be when you grew up. I always knew I wanted to be happy and I wanted my presence in this world to be a positive force for good. And I thought about becoming all sorts of things. I thought I was going to be an astronaut. I thought I was going to be a spelling professor until I learned that that wasn't a real thing that I was going to be a doctor. I was always just really curious. I loved to learn. And one thing is that I was, I, so I grew up in a predominantly white town and, you know, I was this Indian American daughter of Hindu immigrants. And I was really different from the other kids and didn't always feel like I fit in. And I remember literally trying to erase my skin, hoping that it would make it lighter. And my mother would always say, find the helpers, you know, as Mr. Rogers also would suggest, and tried to really focus on those voices that would lift me up, my family, my teachers, other mentors, those friends who loved me no matter my differences. And my mom always said, find the kindness, the good, the love in people, and to find the common ground and to embrace and learn from the differences. And so I just surrounded myself with love and focused on what I had and what I could do rather than what society was telling me that I couldn't do in all the implicit ways, again, in terms of where I wasn't represented in the world around me. And so I just turned to concentrating on things that mattered to me and that drove me. Do you think that experience in your childhood of being othered and feeling like an outsider and, or maybe not as valuable as your peers, do you think that motivates some of the work that you do today? Absolutely. I mean, this project on representation or this research agenda on representation, I often joke that I started it when I was a child because I didn't see myself in the world and I didn't see so many people represented in, in the books and the movies and the commercials around me. I mean, it definitely has shaped deeply why I work on what I work on. And I've also, there is this notion of you can't be what you can't see. But even more than that, I think it's about what others see. So if we are not showing, especially people who are in positions of privilege and in dominant groups, a world where people who are underrepresented have power, have are able to inhabit a wide range of roles, then we are limiting people's imaginations as to what reality could be. 
Anjali, I'm curious if you faced any obstacles in your career. These could be outside obstacles or internal obstacles. And how did you overcome those? Yeah. So as I mentioned, certainly when I was younger, being one of the few children of color or families of color was always one of those things where there weren't roles for me. There weren't, you know, I would often be made fun of for the food I ate or my skin color or the way I dressed. And so in some ways I I grew up having that, you know, those sources of resistance, I guess you could say. And I'm just really grateful and lucky that I had so much support and love in my life. And, but you know, that's continued, right? So it's not that in academia, there are that many women or that many uh, women of color and you, it's changing. And there are wonderful communities that are cropping up and allies that are willing to speak up and be upstanders. And, you know, I'm grateful for all of that. But there's, I I think what's important is that even in the face of any kinds of obstacles is for me, at least remembering all the gifts that I have and to constantly be, you know, filled with gratitude for those things. A couple of years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer And again, how lucky am I that I have access to amazing healthcare and a job where people were very supportive and flexible. And again, through this, what is my job? My job is to be able to do research on areas that I care about. And at that point, I was working on other projects. And because suddenly with chemo and, and whatnot, I wasn't able to travel well, great, I could start working on the representation project, for example, because that didn't require me to go elsewhere. And, you know, in some ways it gave space for me to open up my mind to other ideas to be able to pursue. So Anjali, can you tell me about some of the fun parts of being a professor as well as some of the not so fun parts of being a professor? Oh my gosh, it's so much fun. My, I I get to work with some of the most amazing students around. And there's amazing students all around the world, but certainly the ones I work with inspire me all the time. And I feel like even though I'm getting older, I get to stay youthful through all of this and keep learning about all the new things that are be coming out. And I travel a lot for my work. And in many ways, it's made the world feel really really intimate and small because there you have collaborators and friends and colleagues all over the place. And so, and I get to constantly learn. What is my job? It is genuinely to learn and to help others and share my learnings with others. So it's, um, it's super cool. And what about some of the things that are not so fun and not so cool? Because I know people who love their jobs, there are also aspects of their jobs that they don't love. So I would say, what do I not love? I mean, I think there are parts of every job that can be tedious. So when you're writing your papers and you need to respond to all the different referee comments and format things in a particular way, I mean, that can become tedious. But at the same time, it also pushes me, I mean, the formatting, maybe not so much, you know, so what happens when you submit a paper to a journal goes to an editor and then typically the editor sends it out to around three people who are considered to be peers who then review your work and they give anonymous feedback and they like read your paper in depth and take their own time. They're typically not paid. 
to actually just help improve your work. And so it's not always fun to have to do all the extra little, little pieces that come through it. But more often than not, they actually really do substantially improve your thinking about the project or expand your notions about the questions in some interesting direction, which may be reflected then in that paper or may actually spur ideas for future work. And so I think every job has tedious pieces to it. But within all of that, there's yeah, there are a lot of fun things, though, regardless. I'd say, you know, what do I not love other things is like, you know, if, as I said, most of the time students are amazing. But, you know, sometimes you have uh, like a student who just doesn't want to do their work or doesn't whatever. But again, to me, I we are working with college students and master's students and PhD students. And these are adults. And Everyone gets to decide how they want to spend their time. And even for those who say, ah, I'm not going to do XYZ reading or something like that, there are so many other gifts that they have to offer. And so that's fine. I'm just struck by your optimism and, (laughs) you know, what a joyful outlook you have on life. So Anjali, what would your advice be to someone who is considering entering your field? And when I, when you, when you say entering this field, if you're thinking about entering academia, if you want to do research, first of all, there are so many questions in the world. And something that graduate students sometimes really struggle with is just the process of generating ideas. And so that's where I say, keep a journal of questions that arise and topics that pique your curiosity and your interest. And soon you will find questions in the fabric of everyday life and you will start to articulate the wonder you see in the world around you and what inspires you to action to understand the universe further, right? I find that when I return to past writings and journal entries, I am reminded of questions that had ignited my fires and I see some of the common themes that emerge over time. And it's really, really important that people find their voice and know that their voice and their views will grow and evolve over time. There are just so many interesting and important questions one can pursue. And you really have to be true to yourself, right? Your own truth and draw strength from your struggle, be vulnerable and allow yourself to, you know, really find that deep truth and knowledge within because If you're just following what you think is going to be sexy in academia or what you think the field is going to be excited about, then you know what? This is not the place to be, right? You should, like the places where you're going to make the biggest impact is when you are drawing from within, because that is going to be novel, unique, and a perspective that the world otherwise wouldn't get to see. So yeah, I think people really just need to trust themselves and follow their heart. And finally, Anjali, what is the most gratifying thing that you do in your job? I I will go back to, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but one of them is certainly working with amazing students who inspire me all the time. It is a deep privilege to get to work with them. Also, getting to talk with families and children and learning about what drives them. I am grateful for the time and their sharing of their knowledge and experiences with me. All the people who I talk to about my research projects or to even learn about how the world works or what motivates them. 
I've been speaking with Professor Anjali Adukia. Professor, thank you for your time. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Thanks for listening. 